This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their great online courses that are free. Go to hillsdale.edu. And today, we have George Will celebrating Yogi Berra, who on this day in history in 1951, won the American League MVP. He did it three times. And up until he won the MVP, only one other catcher in baseball history in the American League had ever won it. Here's George Will writing about one of his heroes, Yogi Berra. A high drive, that's trouble, and Yogi Berra goes one high over the screen and into Bedford Avenue. It ain't over till it's over. 90% of this game is half another. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. It's deja vu all over again. The 18-year-old U.S. Navy enlistee, thinking it sounded less boring than the dull training he was doing in 1944, volunteered for service on what he thought an officer had called rocket ships. Actually, they were small, slow, vulnerable boats used as launching pads for rockets to give close-in support for troops assaulting beaches. The service on those boats certainly was not boring. At dawn on June 6, 1944, that sailor was a few hundred yards off Omaha Beach. Lawrence Peter Barra, who died recently at 90, had a knack for being where the action was. When he stood, as a catcher, he spent a lot of time crouching at baseball's most physically and mentally demanding position, five foot seven inches, He confirmed the axiom that the beauty of baseball is that a player does not need to be seven feet tall or seven feet wide. Barra swings, and that one's going to leave the ballpark. Well, what do you know? Larry Barra, they call him Yogi, his very first time at the plate in the major leagues against the A's. And what does he do? He hits a home run. The shortstop during Yogi's first Yankee years was an even smaller Italian-American, 150-pound Phil Rizzuto, listed at a generous 5 feet 6. Yogi had, as sports writer Alan Barra says in his book, Yogi Berra, Eternal Yankee, the winningest career in the history of American sports. Hall of Famer, catcher, Yogi Berra. Played on Yankee teams that went to the World Series 14 times in 17 years. He won 10 World Series rings. No other player has more than nine. He won three MVP awards. Only Barry Bonds has more with seven, but four of them probably tainted by performance-enhancing drugs. Ripped into right field. It's a one-run game as Bonds gets his second of the series. That's the furthest ball I've ever seen hit. In seven consecutive seasons, 1950 through 1956, Yogi finished in the top four in MVP voting. He grew up in what he and others called the Dago Hill section of St. Louis, when the Italian-Americans who lived there did not take offense at the name. 
they had bigger problems. Biographer Alan Barra notes that in 1895 advertisement seeking labor to build a New York reservoir, the ad said whites would be paid a dollar thirty to a dollar fifty a day, colored workers a dollar twenty-five to a dollar forty, and Italians a dollar fifteen to a dollar twenty-five. The term WAP may have begun as an acronym for the phrase without papers, as many Italians were when they arrived at Ellis Island. American sports and ethnicity have been interestingly entangled. The name Fighting Irish was originally a disparagement by opponents of Notre Dame, which for many years had problems filling its football schedule because of anti-Catholic bigotry. But sports also have been solvents of a sense of apartness felt by ethnic groups. In 1923, the Sporting News, which for many decades was described as the Bible of baseball, except by baseball fans who described the Bible as the Sporting News of religion, called the national pastime the essence of the nation. Quote, in a democratic, Catholic, real American game like baseball, there has been no distinction raised except tacit understanding that a player of Ethiopian descent is ineligible. The Mick, the Sheeny, the Wop, the Dutch and the Chink, the Cuban, the Indian, the Jap, or the so-called Anglo-Saxon, his nationality is never a matter of moment if he can pitch, hit, or field. Ah, diversity. In 1908, the Sporting News said this about a Giants rookie, Charlie Buck Herzog. Quote, The long-nosed rooters are crazy whenever young Herzog does anything noteworthy. Cries of Herzog, Herzog, good boy, Herzog, go up regularly. And there would be no let up even if a million ham sandwiches suddenly fell among these believers in percentages and bargains. David Moranis, in his biography of the Pirates' Roberto Clemente, the first Puerto Rican superstar, notes that as late as 1971, Clemente's 17th season, one sports writer still quoted him in phonetic English, quote, if I have my good arm, the ball gets there a little quicker. In 1962, Alvin Dark, manager of the San Francisco Giants, banned the speaking of Spanish in the clubhouse. Today, with three of the most common surnames in baseball being Martinez, Rodriguez, and Gonzalez, some managers speak Spanish. Yogi's great contemporary, the Dodgers catcher Roy Campanella, another three-time MVP, was the son of an African-American mother and Italian-American father. Today, with two Italian-Americans on the Supreme Court, it is difficult to imagine how delighted Italian-Americans were with their first national celebrity, the elegant center fielder on baseball's most glamorous team, Joe DiMaggio, the son of a San Francisco fisherman. DiMaggio was Big Dago to his teammates. Yogi was Little Dago and became the nation's most beloved sports figure. As Yogi said when Catholic Dublin elected a Jewish mayor, only in America. And thank you, George, for that great reading and for really digging in as you do so well in 800 words or less. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history in 1951, Yogi Berra won the American League MVP. More after these messages. Again, this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib, and we love small-town America on this show. Heck, we live in small-town America. We're based out of Oxford, Mississippi, a town of 20,000 tucked in the foothills of northern Mississippi, just south of Memphis. We always hear about big city life in the mainstream media, but here we like to go in the opposite direction by highlighting small-town and midtown life, the kinds of places, well, that make this country great. Our producer, Jesse Edwards, now takes us on a road trip to Bentonville, Arkansas, a town with a population of just over 40,000 people. On the road again, I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends, and I can't wait to get on the road again. Recently, I had the chance to talk with Creed Bratton from NBC's TV series The Office. It's an interview you can catch over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Shortly after the interview, Creed invited me to come see his live show in Bentonville, Arkansas the next day. Although it's a 12-hour drive round trip, I took him up on his offer, loaded up the wife, kids, and the little dog the very next day. Driving 400 miles from Oxford, Mississippi, up to Memphis, Tennessee, across the Mississippi River and into Arkansas, we were now in flat country, as far as the eye could see. On through Little Rock and 200 miles further up, we were into the Ozark Mountains and arrived in Bentonville around 4 p.m. The first thing we noticed was Walmart, or Walmarts. Walmart was everywhere. We saw a big Walmart, a medium-sized Walmart, a tiny Walmart Express. There was even a drive through Walmart. Yeah, it's a Walmart where you order online, drive up to the store, and employees bring groceries out to your car. Not that it all doesn't make sense. After all, Bentonville, Arkansas is the global headquarters of Walmart. We'll talk about all that a little bit later, because tonight we have a show to get to. With the sunset glowing off in the distance on an unusually warm late afternoon, we had a few margaritas and made our way downtown Bentonville to the Meteor Guitar Gallery. Now, the Meteor Guitar Gallery is an unmarked building built in 1905, situated just off the town square. It was used as a silent film theater for years. We arrived about an hour early, and there was already a line forming outside the building of people wanting to see the show. As the building became louder and louder and people began to trickle in, we were told that the beer on tap that was provided by Core Brewing Company would be free. And who doesn't like free beer? A few IPAs later, the room now full, the first comic, Ryan Baker, took to the stage and immediately noticed my two kids sitting in the front row. Remember, if you're not 21, please don't try to get beer or anything like that. Watching these two kids over here. They're sneaky. Next up was comedian Shauna Blake. So I recently discovered that no yoga I do can be considered hot yoga. That's just not really in the cards for me. Um, a friend of mine, she tried to drag me along with her recently to one of those hot yoga studios. Do you know the ones I'm talking about? Yeah, I realized pretty quickly I did not belong there because everyone there had a thigh gap and a top knot and I had a hangover and a half a cheeseburger in my purse the night before. <laughs> and the next stand-up at the show was Raj Shurish. We'll talk to him later on this hour. Take a listen. Indian men and Indian women get perceived very, very differently in this country. i got to tell you guys that, man. Y'all like Indian women. People in America love Indian women. They look at them and they go, wow, she's beautiful. She's pretty educated. She's got nice hair. And they look at me and they go, we got a pick six and a big dog. One dollar Slim Jim and a scratch off. And I'm like, man, 
Who worked at the 7-Eleven? This happened to me real life. Guy stopped me. He goes, hey, uh, could you help me out for a second? I'm having a little bit of trouble finding stuff in the store. And I was like, look, dude, I don't work at the 7-Eleven. And instantly, he's embarrassed. He goes, dude, I feel so bad. I feel terrible. I'm going to leave the store. I said, you don't have to do that. You apologize. It's all good. Go about your shopping. Do what you got to do. And once you're done, we'll, we'll part ways. And no hard feelings at all. And no, dude, I feel terrible. I'm going to leave. I said, you don't have to leave. He said, I'm going to leave. I was like, okay. If you insist, trust me, I don't feel bad about it. You can leave. And he was like, yeah. Once again, I apologize. And as he walked out the door, I was like, thank you. Come again. It's instinctive. Live from the Meteor Guitar Gallery in Bentonville, Arkansas, after the opening comedians finished up their sets, Creed Bratton came out on stage playing his guitar in a way that only a comedian could get away with. He went on to play seven or eight songs, pausing in between each one to tell a joke or a story about his time on the set at NBC. At one point during the show, he recited one of his famous lines from The Office, where his character talks about just how crazy things were back in the 1960s. In the 60s, I made love to many, many women. <laughs> Often outdoors in the rain and the mud. It's possible a man slipped in. There would be no way of knowing. Creed went on to perform his hit song from the 1960s, Live for Today. It was from the time he was with the band he created known as The Grassroots. It was a song that went to number five in the U.S. and number one in Australia and other countries when it was released as a single on May 13th, 1967. When I think of all the worries that people seem to find And how they're in a hurry to complicate their minds By chasing after money as I thought about where I was in this small town of Bentonville, Arkansas, in this old building, listening to people tell jokes and play songs, I realized that my family and I were sitting somewhere pretty special. Every place I've ever been over the years always had a very particular feel to it. What could be described as a certain vibe or even a spirit. Whatever it is, it's strong in Bentonville. The next morning after the show, I met up with the owner of the Meteor Guitar Gallery Eddie. to get his story. Take a listen. Hey, thanks for having me. You thanks right for today? Did you have a good time last night? Yeah, it was a blast. A really special thing you guys got going on here. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's pretty uh, cool. It was nice to finally have one go off good. And that was the first sold out. I mean, we've had that many people before, but we've never had that many ticketed 280 <laughs> seats out. So, yeah, that was packed. Know, it, it all went pretty good. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background, where you're from, what your name is, and what the what, what your title is here at the joint. My name is uh, Les Key. Um, me and my wife and two sons uh, started this place. Uh, uh, we started working on it back in 2013. Meteor Guitar Gallery. Yeah, Meteor Guitar Gallery. Uh, we opened the front in June of 14, and then we got the venue room open in uh, May of 15. Uh-huh. Uh, I grew up here and used to go to the movies here on the weekends when I was a kid and then moved to Ohio for 20 years and mm -hmm. this place sat vacant for 20 years and then we uh, moved back to bring it back to life and get some music going in Bentonville. 
Nice. Um, What's the history of this building here? They built the building in uh, 1905. Uh, It was a a couple of different businesses early on, and then in 27, uh, it had something to do with with Ford Motor Company early on, but we're not totally sure on the history of that, but uh, we do have an original Ford Motor Company logo up on the balcony wall that was used from 07 to 27. Nice. And then it sold, became Ford Motor Company, and uh, at that point is when the Meteor bought it and turned it into a silent movie theater, vaudeville plays. Um, so it was the Meteor for, uh, I think, till about 39 or 40, mm-hmm. and then it turned into the Plaza Theater, and they started doing talkies, uh, regular movies, and changed it a little bit, added on the back and the you know, bigger screen, and... Uh, added the projection booth you know, modified it a little bit upstairs uh, and it was just a one screen theater then until the uh, early 80s uh, 84 85 um, then it was uh, a beauty shop in the front four rooms for about 10 years uh-huh. and then it just kind of went dormant and set for 20 um, and we just it it was going to be a art gallery and small guitar shop and the venue kind of came later we mm-hmm. once we got in and saw how good the room sounded and we already had all the stage and everything to do it we just yeah, it kind of grew as we built it uh turned into a lot more and uh-huh. we were working on getting a, our own radio station in here in just a few more months wow we're uh in the final steps of getting city approval on our antenna and then we'll be broadcasting a little hundred watt local station about everything going on in town and local music and probably blasting some of our shows out and just having a good time with it that's really cool and we do comedy music uh improv uh wedding receptions all kinds of special events and birthday parties and but Probably 80, 85% music. You're listening to Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. When we come back, we'll hear more from the road and on the road in Bentonville, Arkansas, with our producer, Jesse Edwards. American Stories and I'm Lee Habib. We now return to the town of Bentonville, Arkansas with Jesse Edwards. Before the break, we heard from Les Key, owner of the Meteor Guitar Gallery. We now continue that conversation as we learn more about what makes this small corner of America so special. What are some of your biggest challenges opening up a venue like this? I can't imagine it's it's exactly easy to do. Um, but are you getting a lot of support locally, or are you, how, how's that going? Yeah, we get we uh, we we definitely had some obstacles in the beginning when like what? dealing with just dealing with a building that's been vacant for twenty years, yeah. and uh, and it was a little bit of an eye. It's one of the biggest buildings downtown, so being vacant, it was 
yeah, it was a little bit of an eyesore and a, a little problem spot. So yeah, bringing it back to life. Uh, and I did engineering and architecture for 25 years in computer management. So I trained AutoCAD for most of my career. Mm-hmm. So coming into this, it was yeah, just another day at the office kind of thing as right. far as designing it and getting it back to life. But uh, our biggest challenge has really been promotion. You know, mm-hmm. we, we didn't know, I wasn't a music person or, or knew nothing about promoting a concert. You know, I loved them and loved music, but right. this was a whole new world. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't look at how everybody else was doing it at all. Uh-huh. You know, I, I didn't even know where to begin. So we just kind of did it how we wanted to do it, how it worked for us, yeah. and uh, got lucky. And we're talking to Les Key, the owner of the Meteor Guitar Gallery in downtown Bentonville, Arkansas. Next, Les takes me to a room packed from floor to ceiling with just some of the guitars in his massive collection. A lot of oddballs and a lot of, a lot of rare ones. Early Rickenbacker out there, from, or Rickenbacker before they turned into Rickenbacker. It was uh, 1934, one of the first models that they did. We've got a lot of autographed guitars, a lot of memorabilia, and a lot of amps and, and guitars from musicians. You know, we've got one of David Allen Coe's old bass player's basses down there on the floor, and we've got a lot of Black Oak Arkansas's basses and guitars and amps from yeah, Black Oak and Judas Priest, and you know, we've got one upstairs that Stone Temple Pilots used to play with long, long ago when they were just starting up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, guitars signed by... You know, B.B. King and Wes Paul, and you know, we got one over there actually for sale. It's signed by Bruce Springsteen, and we've got David Lee Roth's cased up upstairs, and we've got clear plastic handmade one out here that was made back in the early 40s during the war in France by one of the soldiers. Wow. Uh, got all of his dog tag info and all that inside the, the body. It's the last petty going down. Walking around downtown in Bentonville, Arkansas, you get the sense that things are booming. There's a business behind every window and food on every corner. I asked Les what was behind the boom in downtown Bentonville. I moved away here in 94, and I think there was about uh, somewhere between 10 and 12,000 people yeah. in Bentonville. And now, in, you know, 20 years later, it's you know, topping, uh, I think we're, what, 35,000? There was absolutely nothing to do downtown. We had no restaurants downtown. We had no entertainment at all. Uh, we had a Sonic, a McDonald's, and a, a couple of chain restaurants. And that was pretty much it. We had a, a movie theater in Rogers, and the next one was Springdale or Fayetteville. So even to go to a movie, it was a half-hour drive. Um, so, yeah, moving back now, we've got theaters. We've got... You know, we brought music back finally, so we got that going. And uh, what do you think is responsible for the, the latest boom? Uh, I think a lot of it's the the Walmart Foundation, the downtown development, and coming up with the idea of doing an arts and entertainment district and really focusing around that community was uh, was a huge hit. Uh, I think they nailed it right on the head. It makes it a lot more community involved and, and places for local businesses to fit in and not all corporate. You know, there's there's a, a way to mix that together and I think they're, they're finally hitting on that. So, and I think the community here was starving for it. In case you didn't already know, Bentonville is the global headquarters of Walmart. There's a Walmart of one form or another around just about every corner here. 
There's a supersized Walmart, a regular Walmart, a small Walmart. There's even a drive-through Walmart. And there's Walmart employees everywhere who are flown into Bentonville year-round for training and conventions. We even heard a Walmart employee chant in our hotel. And once inside the Walmart Museum downtown. Here's Sam Walton talking about his early success after opening his five-and-dime store. I've been terrible about setting goals all my life and, and, and trying to get there. And one of, my, one of my goals, as you well know, was to make that the best store in Arkansas. That's right. And we got there before we left town. We came, became the biggest store, most profitable well, uh, Ben Franklin store in the state of Arkansas. We knew so little about the variety store business that we had to take the book that was written by Ben Franklin and, and, and apply the principles and apply the, the controls the, and the merchandise uh, merchandising programs that, that they outlined for us. As of 2014, Walmart employs 2.2 million associates worldwide and serves more than 200 million customers each week at more than 11,000 stores in 27 countries. And it all started right here in Bentonville. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's brought a lot of money to the area. Over 1,300 businesses have moved here just to work with Walmart, and people from all over the world are moving here just to get a piece of the action. Early in our story about Bentonville, we had the chance to catch a comedy show that opened with a young and upcoming comedian, Raj Shurish. Now, Raj tells jokes about cats, Adele, being Indian, Ikea furniture, and a lot more. He usually finds himself tackling current affairs, pop culture obscurities, and delivering his outsider perspective of America. And he also happens to live in Bentonville, Arkansas. I asked him what he thought about the Bentonville boom, what it was like coming to America for the first time, and what it's like being a stand-up comedian from India living in middle America. I only got to the United States six, seven years ago. came here for college. Um, I went to Penn State and then moved around for work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of awkward. I never thought I'd be in a position in life where moving to Arkansas would, would become a sort of major decision for me and uh, a good decision at that. I mean, I didn't start doing stand-up until I got here, and, and it was mostly accidental. I was born in India and lived there till three, uh-huh. um, moved to an island in the Persian Gulf. It's called Bahrain. It's, it's really small and uh, quite peaceful. It's like Manhattan in some regards, but warm. Um, it's really, really small. It's probably the size of one to three counties combined. A lot of sun, um, a lot of uh, very diverse people around me. So I grew up around Indian people, Arab people, British, Irish. It's like right there in, in the middle of everything. So that's kind of where I was for a long time. And then I ended up going back to India for high school. So it was, um, you know, a lot of movement early on. And so I think that's one of the things that sort of helped me hit ground no matter what I'm, where I'm going or what the city is and uh, try to try to make the best of it in any situation really and then how did you come to america what was that that process like how did when did you first realize you were coming here um and then how was that transition you know i didn't it was weird like when it came to college applications i was pretty disconnected from the whole thing my cousin who's older than me picked out like three or four places that he thought i should apply so i applied to some places in the uk um some places in the u.s singapore and um I think I also applied to Australia. So I was pretty spread across the map. I could have really ended up anywhere. Um, I finally ended up at Penn State just because, you know, it, it ranked well. It seemed like a good place to study business. And uh, I just like the weather better than, than it is in the U.K. It's not raining all the time. So it's, it's a little bit better. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib, and we're on the road in Bentonville, Arkansas. 
That was comedian Raj Suresh talking with our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, about coming to America for the first time. When we come back, we'll talk to Raj about living in Bentonville, what it's like being a stand-up comedian from India, living in middle America. sunrise creeping in Everything changes like the desert wind Here she comes and then she's gone again And I'm just a traveler on this earth Showing my heart behind the pocket of my shirt I just keep rolling till I'm in there Cause I'm a traveler This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. Recently, our producer Jesse Edwards was invited to Bentonville, Arkansas to catch a comedy show. In the short 24 hours that he had to see the town, it became clear this was no ordinary place. Since Bentonville is the global headquarters for the Walmart Corporation, a lot of businesses have come to the area just to get in on the action. We return now to our conversation with comedian Raj Suresh, where we get his take on Bentonville and how he got his start in comedy. What was it like yeah. uh, being in America for the first time? What were you feeling? What were you seeing? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, when I first landed, I landed at Detroit Metro. That was the first airport that I flew into. I still remember I was listening to, like, Cowboy, the, the Kid Rock song on the way in, and I, <laughs> I was like, man, Detroit looks pretty nice. And uh, what I didn't know at the time is, like, you're flying over farmland, basically, and you land at the airport, but you never really see the inner city from what I remember. Um, and, and I thought, Hey, this is what all of America's like. It's, it's going to be a pretty good ride. And then I flew from Detroit to Penn state and Penn state has a tiny airport. Like the runway is so short that you're worried that you're not going to stop in time. Um, and I landed, I landed there and I just remember thinking we are landing in the middle of a forest. I'm not sure if I made the right decision right here. <laughs> um, and then finally got to campus and it was, it was insane. You know, you see, you see the stadium and it holds like 110,000 seats. And I've never really seen a stadium of that size before. Um, everything was green. I wasn't really used to, uh, you know, the way people sounded because my accent at the time was still there. It was very different. So a lot of, a lot of change, a little bit of culture shock, a little bit of everything really. So how did you become a stand-up comic? I would actually attribute that to too many beers. <laughs> that got me in, into comedy. I went out with a buddy of mine, and we had a couple beers too many, and I'm still not sure whether he signed me up or I signed myself up. But I remember hopping on stage, and that was a, a year and a half ago, um, and uh, it was so random. I just finished playing a tennis match. We'd gone out for a couple beers, and next thing I know, I'm telling jokes. And I ended up doing like 15 minutes. And I still remember, like halfway through my set, uh, I remember seeing like, you know, uh, flashes and I was like, oh man, I'm doing pretty good. Like people are taking pictures. I should, I should keep going with this. Um, so, you know, I finished the set, came off stage and the MC runs up to me and he's like, dude, I was flashing my torch at you the whole time. You're supposed to do seven minutes. You did 16. What, what's going on <laughs> up there? Um, so I wasn't always, you know, fully aware of the rules, but 
comedically, a lot of what I focus on actually does focus on the dichotomy and, and sort of the contrast that I have between who I am, what I look like, what those experiences are for me versus what they should be. Um, there's a lot of just crazy stuff that happens to me routinely, and, and that forms a sort of fundamental part of my set. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Bentonville? What's what do you think is uh, you know behind the pulse of that town? There's something interesting going on there, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. What's the yeah. deal? Bentonville seems like it's kind of like a right now. It's just a little bit of a playground for different ideas. You know, um, it's been driven by you know traditionally by one large retailer that's here, and that's Walmart. But outside of that, you're starting to see there's a there's a whole lot of companies moving into the area, and with that, they bring people from around the country. I think. Last time I checked, the statistic was something like 23 new people move into Bentonville every single day from a different state. So when we look at that, you're looking at a town that's growing very, very fast. And when you get that many people from outside of here, it's naturally going to change the culture. It's going to shift the narrative for a lot of reasons. Um, People have been exposed to different art forms, different creative things, different businesses, restaurants, food, all of that, other places. And so they're going to bring that flavor down here. Um, when I first started putting shows together, uh, comedy-wise, the only comedy I've been exposed to really was stuff that I'd seen online, like we just talked about, and then stuff that I'd seen in New York City. So those are the two things that I was using as my basis, and I brought that style of show down here. Um, and I tried to create shows that felt sort of inclusive, a little bit full and, and congested, but you were seeing a lot of good and different comics a lot of variety all on one stage at one time. I think if I was to put, if I was to sort of attribute a, a taste or a flavor to Bentonville, it would kind of be one that's that's changing. It's a little mix of everything, but it's definitely right now moving closer towards young and vibrant. You're seeing, you know, bars that focus on mixology and, you know, very high-end food and a lot of quality um, product coming into this area. And so that's kind of where it's going. A traditional town that's transitioning into becoming a younger version of itself almost we're talking with comedian raj shurish out of bentonville arkansas raj is there any feeling in life that's better than making people laugh if there is i haven't found it <laughs> yeah. i haven't uh it's an incredible feeling when you're working with uh literally just words and you're getting people in a mindset where they're having a better day or a better night or maybe even a better week just because of the things you're saying and the way you're saying them. It is a lot of hard work, but sometimes I honestly find driving to gigs is one of the most relaxing things ever. You're just spending three, four hours in a car on your own and it gives you room to think, room to relax. And you're not having to, you know, think about the daily pressures because all of a sudden your focus has to be the audience that you're playing to. It's almost a job, but it's not if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it replaces all of the other things that might be happening in your life because you have a duty to deliver for the people um, that you're going to play to. And it's never, you know, I've heard comics sometimes talk about the room being stiff or the crowd's fault, but I kind of have this this principle that it's never the audience. It never is. If I'm on stage, it's my responsibility to to really work that room up and get it to where it needs to be. That was comedian Raj Shurish. If you want to check him out online, it's rajdoescomedy.com. That's rajdoescomedy.com. Another thing that cannot go without mention when talking about Bentonville, Arkansas, is the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. 
I had no idea what we would find at this museum. When I hear the term American art, my mind automatically brings up images of chairs made entirely out of horseshoes and large metal flowers crafted from rusty welded metal that one might place in the garden. You know, folk art. The kind of art you might see for sale at your local antique consignment store. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, after all, we're in Bentonville, Arkansas. What kind of masterpiece could you expect to find out here that you couldn't find in a three-star hotel? Boy, was I wrong. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art is anything but kitsch. In fact, it's the exact opposite. This is a world-class museum. And it's free to the public. All paid for by, you guessed it, Walmart. The museum was founded by Alice Walton of the Walmart family. She spearheaded the Walton Family Foundation's involvement in developing Crystal Bridges. The artwork here is amazing. Modern works from Andy Warhol to Norman Rockwell, life-size masterpieces of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton from the 18th and 19th centuries. Some of these paintings were purchased in the tens of millions of dollars. The architecture is surreal. It cost over $150 million just to build the museum, which consists of two glass bridges that sit over a pond in a creek surrounded by 120 acres of natural forest. The Walton Family Foundation donated over $1.2 billion to the project before it even opened in 2011. Here's the founder of the Crystal Bridges American Art Museum, Alice Walton. Well, this was our backyard growing up. So I rode horses and played hide-and-seek and, seek and tried, to, tried to catch up with my brothers when they were running away from me. Art wasn't accessible to me as a child, and I hope that changes now for people throughout this region. My parents spent a lot of time with us growing up uh, talking about the importance of giving back. My parents didn't believe value and worth had anything to do with money. If you're ever in Bentonville, this museum is a must-see. This hour, you've been listening to our report on Bentonville, Arkansas. We talked with Les Key, the owner of the Meteor Guitar Gallery, about some of the challenges involved with opening a music venue in small-town America. We also talked with comedian Raj Shurish about what it was like coming to America for the first time, how he got into comedy, and what it's like living in Bentonville. And we heard about the world-class antiquities on display at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. In the brief 24 hours that my family and I spent in Bentonville, we witnessed all the good that Walmart has done for the area, because it's really hard to miss. If you're ever in the general vicinity of Bentonville, stay for a couple of nights and bring the kids. See everything there is to see. Talk to people. There's bound to be a lot more around here than we were able to see in our short trip. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. We hope you enjoyed our peek into the town of Bentonville, Arkansas, with our producer, Jesse Edwards. Small-town America is a thriving pulse within our nation, And from time to time on Our American Stories, we like to take you there with us. There's a lot of beauty in seemingly ordinary places, and Bentonville is a perfect example. If you'd like to share a story about your hometown, give us a call anytime, 24-7, toll-free at 844-627-8255. That's 844-627-8255. We might even use your story on air. And as always, to hear this story again or share with friends, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, art, love, death, business, and sometimes public policy, when the public policy hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And one of the groups we love to hear from the most is the Goldwater Institute. They brought us the story on Right to Try, a movement they inspired to give dying patients a right to try experimental drugs that could save their lives. Check it out at OurAmericanNetwork.org. They also brought us the story of Dr. Carol Landrum, the 88-year-old doctor in rural Mississippi who traveled to patients who otherwise wouldn't have had a doctor anywhere nearby and how his own state government tried to take away his medical license because he didn't work in a traditional office. These folks at the Goldwater Institute fight full-time on behalf of the least vulnerable in society and never at a cost to them. But this isn't just work for the folks over there. It carries over in some cases and hopefully in most to their personal lives. And that's what we're going to explore today with their president and mother of three adopted children, Darcy Olson. And we're celebrating, of course, all month long, National Adoption Month. Darcy, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for all the work you're doing for collaborating with us. And we look forward to doing many, many more stories about the important work you're doing. But I'd like to start here with uh, an earlier moment in your life when you were a drug counselor, of all things, Darcy. How did you get into that line of work? What was it like? And were there any moments from that that meant as much to you as anything else in your life, looking back in retrospect on that experience? Well, so I was a drug counselor in a transitional house for, for veterans who had, uh, who had served the country, most of them in Vietnam, and they had gone through a 30-day drug rehabilitation, and they were living in homes trying to, um, trying to get the good habits back in life and find jobs and connect, reconnect with their families and so forth. And I, I was very blessed to have that job. I was a student at Georgetown and I needed to work to help uh, pay for that. And, um, you know, I applied for it. And I remember uh, the interviewer saying, because I am Caucasian and most of the clients were not. And one of the questions that she asked was, you know, how are you going to relate to these people who don't look anything like you and they're all men and they're all older? And I said, well, um, we're all people. And um, the problem of drug use, reconnecting with family, getting a job, um, needing, to, um, needing to find our spiritual, our best spiritual life is, you know, that is not, we're not bound by color, by age, or any other limits. And I said, we all have that in common. And I said, we're just going to connect as people. And sure enough, I went in there and I looked a little bit different and there was a little bit of skepticism. But at the end of the day, um, I made some wonderful friends. And I think um, I learned a lot from these, from these men. And one of the things that I learned is that the rain falls on us all. A lot of people think that uh, drug use or alcohol use, um, these abuses, and you, you know, must be they, may, they must have had bad parents, or maybe they weren't well educated. Um, one of the men I remember most fondly was a graduate of Harvard University, and that was a very humbling life lesson to look around and never take for granted where you are in life, and to know that challenges will come, and. Um, you know, we all need to hold hands and help each other through these things, not pass judgment, but just be there for family, for friends, and strangers who are going through these life challenges of mortality. 
Yeah, and to offer them unconditional love, because you're right, the rain falls on us all. And sooner or later, something's going to come down the pike in your family or your immediate friends. It is inevitable, Darcy. It's inevitable. Definitely. And I think that is where we can all connect. You know, when your heart is open, people feel that. And, you know, I felt that. And I think that they felt that. And uh, I would just, I've been... Um, lucky that, you know, I, you said, how did you get into that? And I just, I have always had a heart for justice when I was a um, little, I think the first time I made a petition to petition the government for a change in the policy, in policy, I was um, about 10 years old and I was very upset at the clubbing of seals. Um, and so I made my own little petition for Greenpeace and I walked it around the neighborhood and I had people sign it. And my views on certain things obviously have evolved since I was 10 or 11. But, but I think that that sense of justice, uh, the, the, the ability to look at the world and say there, there is a better way, uh, that, is, that is what has driven me in my work at the Cato Institute, now my work at the Goldwater Institute, and in my personal life, too. And we're talking to Darcy Olson, the CEO of the Goldwater Institute. And just a minute or so here, and we're going to get into it in much more depth in the next segment. But talk to us about what inspired you as a busy CEO to, and, and, a, single, and a single person to start to adopt children. What triggered you? Was, it, was there a sense of justice? Did justice prevail in this space on some level, Darcy? Definitely the sense of justice. And it, you know what's funny about some of these decisions, and I think listeners can relate to this, sometimes once you've made a decision, you think, "Why? what took me so long to get here? This makes the most sense. This is the best thing I've ever done. And I, I felt inspired to become a foster parent uh, through a few different things, including prayer. And um, when I felt that inspiration, I... I thought, this is wonderful because I am single and I hadn't met the right person yet. And I thought, well, this, this is wonderful. This is how I'll be able to be a mother. Maybe it won't be the way that I thought it would be, but if it, if it serves a higher purpose, and then, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll go with that. This is wonderful. And so I went in, um, it, literally the next day, uh, to start getting trained. And I, I talked to one of the women and I told her about the place I was living in. And it turns out that my spare bedroom didn't meet regulations because, you know, all about government regulations. Yep. It didn't have the right size window or whatever. And she said, but you could, you could take a child under three and have them in your room with you in your bedroom. And I said, Oh my goodness children under three, don't you have any two-parent families who can take the babies? Because that, you know, that's ideal. And what she said was, we have babies overnight in office buildings and shelters. So if you could open a crib, we would be so grateful. And you can hear it in my voice. I mean, my my heart just fell. And I said, I will absolutely open a crib. You betcha. You'll do it right away. In fact... I got one ready right now. I'll get it together. I'll go to Costco and I'll have it slapped together in an hour. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Darcy Olson, CEO of the Goldwater Institute. We're not talking public policy here. We're talking about something even more important. Adoption and love. More after these messages. This is Our American Story, and we continue our conversation with Darcy Olson, 
the CEO of the Goldwater Institute, and the adoptive mother of three beautiful children. And let's pick up where we left off, and let's take that first child. First of all, were you terrified, excited, both? What did your, fr- <laughs> what did your friends think? What did your family think? And when that child came home for the first time, Darcy, what were the thoughts that came to you? Oh, my goodness. I was um, a little bit terrified, but mostly I was just so excited. I thought, well, this is great. I mean, I, you know, this is exciting. This is wonderful. So uh, everyone thought I was crazy. I mean, if you, if you except I have a few people in my life who, um, who understand inspiration. They understand prayer, and they understand service. Most people just thought, how are, you know, they thought about the logistics. How are you going to do this? You're single. You're running the Goldwater Institute. And, and I've always believed that if you do what's right, um, God makes the edges just a little bit softer, and he helps that path. And I believe that, and I believe it to this day, that it has been much easier for me as a single parent um, than, than it should be, because, because those blessings come. Um, but my very, first, my very first one, so the day after I was licensed, I got the phone call for her, and they said, we have a little boy who is in the hospital, can you go pick him up? And I said, sure, and I arrive, and it's a little girl. And, you know, that's how the bureaucracy is, right? They can't even keep track of these poor kids in the system. (laughs) And there's this tiny little girl, and so precious, and the nurse there said, "Uh, this is one of the sweetest babies we've ever had come through here. And she said, go ahead, pick her up, change her, and we'll roll you out of here, and you'll love this government regulation. They made me sit in a wheelchair and hold the baby to leave the hospital. And the woman pushing me was, of course, much older than I was. And I just said, this is crazy. Can I please just walk out of here? I'm taking your time. And she said, it's a regulation that when you leave with a new baby, you have to leave in a wheelchair. (laughs) So just an aside, very funny, all these regulations that pop up. But um, I ended up, I ended up that that, that, um, that beautiful, beautiful little girl did not have uh, any family capable of taking care of her. And she became my first daughter. And about the time she was turning one, I felt the feeling that I should open up another crib. And, of course, then people thought I was just absolutely crazy. Was I going to have two in diapers, and how is this possible? And I said, it will work out. And I opened the door, and this beautiful little baby came in. And within a week or two, I knew that she was going to go to an aunt, and it would be a real fostering situation. So we just loved her, took care of her. But a couple months into taking care of her, one of the people involved in her case came to me in the monthly meeting that we have and said, just out of the blue, as so many of these things have happened, and said, I have a little baby boy on my docket who will be going up for adoption, and I'd really like him to be part of your family. Would you consider it? And let me tell you, I, I got chills, but I said the same thing I said the first time I met the first regulator. Don't you have any two-parent families who can do this job better? And she said to me, I've interviewed a lot of two-parent families, but I know the future that he'll have with you, and I want him in your home. So that became my son. So I basically ended up with with a set of twins at that point in time. And um, all of the ladies at church helped. I I remember when we had to move into a bigger bigger house that it was like an Amish barn raising. Uh, All of the church ladies and all of the husbands were there at 6 o'clock in the morning, and by noon, they had packed and unpacked and moved us into a new home and even had the cribs and beds made for the babies in six hours. That's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and, I, and again, you couldn't have planned for this. You couldn't have thought it out. 
Uh, and this is where your your prayer life and and deep connections to family, faith, and church. Uh, well, they take take the role of government away. I mean, this is one of the arguments we have in the public square regularly, Darcy. I mean, these these powers of individuals working together to do great things are always better than a than a faceless bureaucracy. Yes, and it it reminds me of I go back to Hillary Clinton's book, and it was well intentioned. Her her idea of it takes a village, and I know where the proverb comes from that everybody needs to love children and so forth. Uh, but that can be taken in the wrong direction because th- what it really boils down to is it takes a mom. It takes a family. Um, it's not about the amount of money a child has. It's not about social services. The thing that a child needs most in this world is a family to love, um, somewhere to go back to after they go to college, somewhere to call home, people to care for them, teach them, um, correct them, give them friends, family, teach them about uh, faith, service devotion, duty, commitment, all of those things. And none of those things can be as well done through a program as they can through a family setting. Even, I would go so far as to say, an imperfect setup. Mine is not perfect. Um, obviously, we're, we're still in search of a father. I, I was always joking about that. Um, fortunately, I have a wonderful brother-in-law who stands in quite a bit for them. But, uh, but it's still a family, and it's full of love, and it's full of faith and confidence in the future. And that is what these children need. So there are so many families out there I know who are listening. There are people who have struggled with trying to have a biological child. There are people who have looked at adoption and thought they can't afford it. And I would just like to say that being a foster parent, even if it's temporary, and sometimes it is temporary, it's not always an adoption, you are still a parent. You're still providing that love, and you're still, in my in my mind, um, still doing the Lord's work. And I hope that people you have open hearts to that and, and know about that. I, I wish I had known about fostering 10 years earlier because instead of, you know, now I'm on my, taking my sixth in, but, you know, I probably would have had 16 over time. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing, and it's, it provides the possibility for everyone to have a family. And I think that this is the longing of everyone is to have a family, and more importantly, to give love and receive love. And the best way to receive love, of course, is to give it, how has being a foster mom and now an adoptive mother changed you, Darcy, as a person? Uh, it's it's changed everything. Um, I think I think uh, you know when people always say when you become a parent, every time you read a news story about someone who gets hurt um, or they're suffering, you immediately think of your own child, and it it opens your heart in a in a in a new way. It's, I, I can't really describe it except to say that I pass a lot, a lot less judgment on other people and I have a, a bigger heart for love. I think, I mean, I still have a long way to go, but I feel like it refines you to be the best you can be. I mean, if you're, if you, if you're not patient and you have three under two, which I did at one point, you learn patience very quickly yep. and that, that patience will translate into into all kinds of situations. So I think anybody who's been a parent or if you've been in a close relationship, even a close friendship or a marriage, those relationships improve you greatly and you become your higher and better self. So I, I love that. And I'm so, so grateful for the way that, um, for the things that I've learned and, and of course, the way your, your children eventually come, come to teach you. You bet. And talk to us about time management. 
How do you do it? And tell us the fascinating thing you told your employees to make sure you were being fair to them with these new needs that you had and these new demands on your on your personal life. Um, I, I I'm not sure what you're referring to. Maybe a while back, is it when I told it was when I told my team, if you ever feel like I'm not doing this job, you know, please tell me or just tell someone on the board and I will change my work. Yep, that? I, that's the one <laughs> yeah. where you, you said, look, I'll take a lower paying position if you all think this is hindering my ability to perform as CEO. And I want to, and, and you, I think you made this earnestly and honestly. To- oh, I did. And I, and repeatedly, I mean, I repeatedly <laughs> said that and I, and I meant it. Um, you, you ha- so the key when you're talking about time management, you have to know your priorities. And I know the very most important job I have is, is being a mother to these children. And it is not to give short second shrift to the Goldwater Institute. I love this work. It's a calling, and I'll be doing it if, if I'm lucky for the rest of my life. But you have to know that. And so I did say, if ever you think this, that we are compromised in any way because of my devotion to family, I can do something different. But what I can't do is be less of a mother to these children. And, you know, it's, as I said, I think, um, I think Providence helps us when we make those right decisions. And sure enough, in the past five years when I've been taking in all of these children, we have had um, unparalleled growth over these years. And, you know, we now, uh, we're now litigating and working all across country, which we weren't doing. So, um, you know, I've slept a little bit less. Uh, I've <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you burn the midnight oil for a few years, but it reminds me a little bit of going to college and working. And I'm not afraid of a little bit of hard work for the right thing. So, you know, buckle down, don't complain, and keep your, keep your priorities straight, and all will be well. Well, you know, a friend of mine last night who just adopted four kids uh, at a time because his brother died in a tragic plane crash said, you know, I sleep a lot less, but I live a lot better. And uh, I couldn't think of a better way and a better toast to have. And Darcy, thanks for what you do at Goldwater. And thanks for doing what you've done for these children. Darcy Olson, CEO of the Goldwater Institute. It's National Adoption Month. And we're celebrating adoption stories all over this great country. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love telling great business stories, sports stories, and anytime anyone's got a great passion in life, we love to get into that, too. Check our segment on Wayne Bisbee's dad and the legacy he and his son built together. Started out with a bet between a bunch of guys doing some marlin fishing in Cabo in 1988. Six guys ponied in $10,000, and they had a little competition for the sheer heck of it. And, well, 1,000 people ponied up 100,000 to pop in the last Bisbee adventure for marlin hunting and marlin fishing. And that's what Americans do. We love our pastimes. We love our hobbies. And in a minute, we're going to be talking to the senior vice president of Fan Experience. And what a great title, uh, the Atlanta Falcons, because as you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about food prices and the stadiums and sports and how the middle class is getting priced right out of a great American experience and pastime, the ultimate American sport, professional football. 
But before we do that, we've got to take a listen to Jesse, who's got some new shower thoughts. Shower thoughts. What the heck does a professional golfer do when they retire? Most people retire and then take up golf. All of the best skipping rocks are in the middle of the lake. The fact that we know chameleons even exist just proves that they're total failures. If you break the laws of man, you go to jail. If you break the laws of God, you go to hell. If you break the laws of physics, you go to Sweden and get a Nobel Prize. Generally speaking of plants, if you consume it and something good happens, it's medicine. If you consume it and something bad happens, it's poison. If you consume a plant and nothing happens, it's salad. If you consume a plant and the walls start melting, it's a controlled substance. (laughs) The only difference between a regular dot and a polka dot is the absence of other dots. When I die, I want to see a list of stats of everything about me. How many steps I took, breaths, total distance walked, and so on. Maybe even a highlight reel of all the best shots I've made tossing things into trash cans. Or a visual chart of exactly how many chickens I've eaten in my lifetime. Wow. That's a lot of chickens, man. Getting another set of teeth would be much more useful at age 60 than age 6. Is it ironic that only one company is allowed to produce the board game Monopoly? If I was a cop, I'd drive an unmarked car with honk if you're drunk as a bumper sticker. If you see a bald eagle at the zoo, you're looking at the American symbol of freedom in captivity. If you step on people's feet, they'll open their mouth just like a trash can. How funny would it be if farting was just as contagious as yawning? One-third of marriages are now from online dating, and that number is only increasing. That means that computer algorithms are starting to breed humans. You could also argue that computers lead to human reproduction, and therefore more computers. That means that we are the vector by which computers reproduce. Jesus coming to earth, making friends, dying, and then revealing himself to be God's son is like the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss. Rap songs that reference dollar values won't adjust for inflation, and the references will sound cheaper over time. (laughs) I think the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz might have kept the flying monkeys around to mask her terrible smell, since she could never take a shower. Ah! You cursed rat! Look what you've done! I'm melting! Melting! Shower thoughts! (laughs) Great job, Jesse, as always. And now we switch over to Mike Holmes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience at the Atlanta Falcons. And Mike, before we start, I just want to give you a great big shout out and a congratulations. You guys landed the Super Bowl. Talk about that, the year. Let everybody know how exciting that must be, not only for you and the Atlanta Falcons, but for the city of Atlanta. Yeah, you know, I uh, appreciate that. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you know, we found out yesterday uh, from the NFL owners meeting that uh, indeed we won the the rights to host Super Bowl 53, which is in uh, 2019. Uh, our stadium opens in seven in 2017 next year. So, uh, you know, when you when you build a stadium the, the way that we're building it, um, you build it to host uh, not only your home teams, but of course these kind of world class events. 
So adding to the College Football National Championship and the NCAA Final Four uh, to have a uh, to have a Super Bowl coming back to Atlanta is great. And to your point, it is a public-private relationship. Uh, we can't do this without the city, the infrastructure the city's put in, the commitment that the city's made, all the hotel rooms and the other entertainment options really just make Atlanta a world-class city in that regard. And and uh, we're we're excited to host the. United States, if not one of the world's biggest sporting events, for sure. So, uh, to know, it was, it was a big day yesterday. It's fantastic. And, by the way, you have a world-class aquarium, too. And it's interesting that the Home Depot co-founders both have a lot to do with both of those things. And it shows us all how private business working alongside a city can literally change the world, uh, Mike. It's really stunning. Hey, let's talk about uh, this, this title you have. Uh, because I love the I love the title fan experience, not customer experience. Uh, but before we dig into that, we love asking people about who they are and where they're from. Mike, just a bit about your uh, your childhood and also what you thought you were going to be when you grew up and what you're doing now, and, and then and whatever the dissonance is between those two. So, uh, so okay, that's a question I didn't expect. I grew up in uh, Rhode Island, as we used to say in Rhode Island, we're the biggest little state in the Union, uh, yep. the 50th in size, but, you know, mighty in strength uh, and fortitude. And then um, I actually thought uh, my dream was to get into sports, doing uh, play-by-play, uh, basketball, football. I just had this incredible love of sports when I was a kid and went to uh, Syracuse University, which... You can't watch an NFL game or a national television broadcast and not continue to stumble across folks who went to Syracuse. Ted Koppel, my goodness, that's Ted Koppel's alma mater, right? Yeah, Ted Koppel, Mike Tirico, Bob Costas, Dick Stockton, Marv Albert. Oh, my goodness. The new guy doing Monday Night Football, Sean McDonough, Ian Eagle. It goes on and on and on. It's unbelievable. So for a variety of reasons, after college, uh, as I graduated, I chose not to do that, and I found my way down to Disney World. Um, I had been there a couple times as a kid, was fascinated by it, and, um, you know, started at the kind of the, the entry-level host, providing, providing guest service, right? Not customer in Disney's language, it's guest. And um, had the opportunity to, to run into an incredible, fantastic run of leaders, um, some of whom now are the president of Disneyland and the president of Walt Disney World and the president of Disney Cruise Line that I work directly for, learned at their knee what it means to deliver fantastic and develop fantastic guest experiences, and uh, after 21 years at Disney, got a phone call from Arthur Blank, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons and our new Mercedes-Benz Stadium and uh, our Atlanta United Soccer Club, which, which launches next year. And he said, if we're going to do something different in the world of sports when it comes to fan experience, we need to hire somebody from outside of sports. We need to hire someone from a place like Disney. I got a phone call, and now next thing you know, I moved to Atlanta to try to, uh, to help Arthur and, and this great leadership team uh, attain the vision, the bold vision that they've set forth to create an unparalleled stadium experience and an unparalleled fan experience. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be part of the team. Well, and you know, and, and lucky you for having great mentorship and mentors in your life. Uh, we talk a lot about that here on this show. And behind every great man and woman are all kinds of people who helped along the way. And those of us lucky enough are smart enough to seek out mentors and seek out corporate and business environments and actually educational environments that breed good character, that teach folks the lessons they need to learn in life. When we come back, we're going to talk with Mike about, well, what we had originally planned to talk to him about, which is food prices in the stadiums and that stadium and fan experience and about what may be one of America's great, great products. We love talking about music here on Our American Stories, and that's one of them. But my goodness, sports... 
We love our sports, and my goodness, we love our professional football, not only here on Our American Stories, but across America. This is Lee Habib, more with Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience of the Atlanta Falcons, after these brief messages. American Stories, and we're talking with Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience, the Atlanta Falcons, and we just learned about his trek through his life, a journalism degree at Syracuse, where my goodness, not only being surrounded by excellence in that department, but my goodness, what a sports town, what a great college town for sports. Jim Beheim's remarkable basketball teams, a pretty serious football team. By the way, Jim Brown, the great NFL running back, is a graduate of Syracuse. Not only one of the great professional football athletes, one of the great NFL backs, but also a remarkable lacrosse player. I've just been reading about Jim Brown's life, and we're going to be doing a feature on him. So, so Mike, you, you end up in Atlanta in this job. Talk about what, what is at the core of, of your function. What are you guys trying to do? What we, what we were alluding to before uh, the break was that the price of so many concessions uh, at so many professional games make the parent feel either poor or guilty, and then they whip out that charge card, and then when that bill comes in the mail, they go, my goodness, I don't know if I can do that again, and I know I speak for a lot of families. Uh, talk about that discussion that you must have been having uh, with senior management at the Falcons. Uh, sure. You know, when, when we go to any sporting events, you know, even myself, right, as a fan, Food and beverage is part of the experience. It's a day out. It's an evening out. It's entertainment, um, whether it's a concert or, or, uh, or a sporting event. And in all of the research that we do, that becomes an important part of overall satisfaction um, is food and beverage or, or concessions, depending on your, your point of view. Um, as we further look at the research, it continues to score the lowest. Uh, amongst all of the different elements that comprise satisfaction on game day. And to no surprise, as you just mentioned, pricing's at the top of that list. Um, you know, the, the, the prices feel like we're being gouged. Yep. Uh, it's not affordable. If, you know, if I'm just buying a, you know, a beer or a, or a soda and a hot dog for myself, that's one thing. If I'm coming with my, my wife and kids, well, now I'm sh- you know, footing the bill for all five of them. And you're right. I mean, you, you get a ridiculously small amount of, of food and beverage for what seems to be an egregious price. We looked at that and said, wait a minute, there has to be a different way to execute this. There has to be something that can be done to treat this in a more fan-friendly fashion. And from Arthur Blank, who prided himself as he founded the Home Depot based on the customer service ethic uh, that he holds so dear, he challenged us to think of a different model and... Uh, Rich McKay, who's our president and CEO, you know, really continued to push the envelope and said, how can we charge prices that aren't just fair, but eye-poppingly 
appropriate for fans, not compared to what you would pay in an arena or a ballpark or a stadium, but compared to what you'd pay in a local quick service restaurant or at a convenience store. Mm-hmm. No reason to charge $5 for a soda, $4 for water, $6 for a hot dog. We all know we're being gouged. So we decided to do what we call fan-first pricing, um, which, uh, which will start to sell products in a, in a level that you've never seen really in a stadium. $2 for a hot dog. Two dollars for a soda that's refillable. Two dollars for, uh, you know, for chips. Three dollars for fries. Three dollars for, you know, for a, for a for a hot pretzel. Two dollars for popcorn. Something where you can actually now get a hot dog, fries, and a coke, uh, and get that for your entire family of four for under thirty dollars. Wow. Uh, has has received. Listen, did we know we were doing something great for the fans? Absolutely. Did we expect the national? viral aspect of this to take off the way it did, well, it's exceeded our expectations. And, you know, we're happy to talk about it because we think we're doing something great for our fans. Well, and you are, Mike. And I'm telling you, that that experience you have as a dad, and you know this, we've all been there in our lives. We can't afford something. And we know the price is ridiculous. And those little kids are looking at you, Daddy, I just want a soda and a hot dog. And so you do it. And you can't. And you're so mad. And you feel violated, actually, at that point, like $4 for water. You're just going, that's just so wrong on so many levels. And I'm a fan. So they're taking advantage of my fandom, Mike. I think that's what really cuts to the core of that. That's right. You know, we're not the only industry where where that has happened. I mean, go to the movie theater. I've been complaining about movie theater prices since I was a kid. Here I am, 30-plus years later. Movie theaters haven't changed their pricing model, right? So so this isn't – our approach wasn't to try to save the industry. We are by no means – magnanimous at that level right right? that's for uh, there's other (laughs) business models there's other business considerations that each team each stadium has to consider and and i don't i'm not trying to put myself in their shoes for us it was all about our fans our atlanta falcons fans our atlanta united fans and what what uh what the way we approach this is anybody who shows up at the new mercedes-benz stadium uh which is when this will take effect when when the stadium opens in 2017 any customer, any fan, any guest becomes our guest, whether they're there for the SEC championship game, whether they're there for the Final Four, or whether they're there for the Super Bowl. So these are the same prices that will be charged regardless of the event, whether it's a high school football championship or the Super Bowl, the prices I just talked about, uh, which will apply across our entire menu, where the food will be priced in a very fair way, and if we go get a local specialty restaurant that charges seven dollars for a you know pulled pork barbecue sandwich at their restaurant, you'll be charged seven dollars in our stadium. There's not going to be a stadium markup unnecessarily applied, and it'll apply to every event, every type of of, uh, of guest or customer or fan that shows up to our stadium. So we this is this is applicable beyond just the Atlanta Falcons. You know, Mike, it'll be interesting to see if people actually buy more product. And in the end, that there's not necessarily a dip in your revenue because people will order that extra dog or buy that extra soda. I think that'll be, you know, do you have any preconceptions about what that might look like and how you're making up the revenue in other areas? I mean, ultimately, you're in a business to make a profit. Those athletes don't come cheap. My goodness, those coaches aren't cheap. And you're in the talent business in the end on the executive level and on the athlete level. You talk about that and, and, and what your projections are given this, this new change. Yeah, so I'll talk about it through two perspectives. One is from a revenue perspective, if you look at the way, and we'll focus on the NFL, right, the TV contracts that get struck with the direct TVs and, and NBCs and ESPNs 
um, flows a significant amount of revenue to all of the NFL teams. Your sponsorship revenue is also a big chunk. Your ticket revenue is a big chunk. At the end of the day, food and beverage is a relatively, really small amount. So to try to gouge fans when it really doesn't amount to be a significant part of your revenue was no longer, was not a driver for us. So therefore, we could really focus on the fan aspect of this and not the quote-unquote lost revenue. So that, that's one point. The other piece is um, where we do expect to see an increase of demand, uh, we've had to model a variety of different um, of options because to just sell these products at low prices and not contemplate how you lay out the entirety of your program uh, to ensure that lines move quickly, food can be processed quickly, but you can maintain high quality is critical. So in other words, every stadium could just simply lower prices. But if they see a 20, 30 plus increase in demand, they won't be able to handle it. And now fans will be frustrated. You bet. We should just hold a $5 hot dog because I don't want to wait 20 minutes. In right. <laughs> so my Disney background is, is making me think of the discipline that Disney uses to try to ratchet seconds out of every single transaction because seconds end up equaling minutes when you compound them over thousands and thousands and thousands of fans in a small amount of time. So the amount of points of sale that we're putting in the new stadium, which amounts to be more accessibility across all three main layers of the, of the stadium, 100, 200, and 300 levels, increased by 65% as compared to the, to the current home of the Atlanta Falcons, the Georgia Dome. And um, the way in which we're doing soda is uh, uh, fans will be able to get their sodas, but we're, we're not going to fill sodas behind the counter. You'll be able to go fill it yourself at um, self-service stations at spread throughout the building. And if you want to get a refill, you want to top that off before you leave the building, go ahead and do it. It's, it we're not going to charge you a subsequent transaction. We're not putting an RFID chip in the cup to validate are you allowed <laughs> to get one refill or many We've really tried to focus this on the fans, but at the same time, we have to design the building to be as efficient as possible because that's the, the number two issue for fans. Our lines are too long, right? So we can't just address pricing. We've got to address all the pain points, variety, quality, length of lines, and as we've already announced, we're hitting affordability uh, straight on. You bet. And we're talking to Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience the Atlanta Falcons, and just one, if you could answer in maybe 30 or 45 seconds, Mike, and I know we're putting you on the spot, but Arthur Blank is the co-founder of Home Depot, and my goodness, we did an hour on him and Bernie Marcus a couple of weeks ago, and the customer service ethos of Home Depot, and it was just astonishing, and how much does he drive this this ship in this respect, Mike? How much of this comes from Arthur? It, it, shows, it comes straight from the top. This is not a... In, in, uh, an idea that germinated from the ground floor and had to go up to Arthur. This is the challenge Arthur set forth. It's the reason, quite frankly, I'm in the role that I'm in, is that's how important he thinks of the customer experience, of the fan experience, that he wanted somebody brought in to help work across the entire organization to ensure every single aspect of the stadium experience was either optimized or, quite frankly, in the case now of food and beverage, reimagined to really drive fan value it doesn't compare us to hopefully other stadiums, but compares us to those great customer experience organizations, you know, to the Apples of the world, to the Starbucks of the world, to the, to the Disneys of the world. And that's what we're aspiring to do. But it does come directly from Arthur's bold vision. Yeah, so much does. The leadership 
uh, means everything in life. And you were lucky enough to work at Disney, uh, where there was great leadership, and then under the under the tutelage of Arthur Blank, one of America's great businessmen. Mike, we look forward to coming to Atlanta and catching a game. We're in Oxford, Mississippi. We're not far away. Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience, Atlanta Falcons. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Oh, thanks so much for having us. I appreciate it. You bet. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. 